0: Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, you could turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 39 through 55. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you could use one of the chair Bibles in the seat in front of you. And our preaching passage this morning is on page 908. Page 908 for Luke chapter 1. Um, in the introduction to the sermon last week, I uh, sung the praises, pun intended, of Christmas music. And I suggested that music seems to broadcast at a deeper frequency, a, a heart level frequency, that ordinary speech doesn't seem to broadcast. I think music is one of God's great gifts to us. And in the Bible, we see how singing, in fact, is so often the response of delight and deep feeling. Of God's people. So, just as an example, the very first recorded words of a human being are from Adam in response to seeing Eve for the first time. And he doesn't just say, wow, right? He says, wow, in the form of a song. At last, he sings. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. When when the children of Israel are finally released from Egyptian bondage, and they've escaped through the Red Sea. What do they do? They sing a song. Exodus chapter 15 um, has the song in it, and it has lines that are reminiscent even of the Advent song that we're going to look at today. The children of Israel and Moses sing, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength. And my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And of course, we have an entire songbook in the Old Testament, the Psalms themselves, which served as um, uh, one of which served as our preaching text last week, right? And the Psalms represent the singable response to who God is and what God has. Done, And so today's song is in that tradition, magnifying the God who gives us the greatest gift, the gift of himself. So let's begin reading Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. "'In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit.' Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Um, Father, I would ask in advance of... The preaching of this sermon, that you, by your Spirit, would be in the business of casting down the strongholds in our hearts that we put up between ourselves and you, that you would topple those those towers, monuments to ourselves, even this very morning, that you would soften our hearts to not just see the glory of your Son, Christ Jesus, but to magnify it, to rejoice in it in our spirits and we thank you for the gift of your gospel and we thank you for the gift of your son Christ Jesus who we receive by his gospel and it's in his name we pray these things in the name of Jesus amen so as we continue in our series through the songs of Advent we move today from the Old Testament to the New Testament in in, in Luke's gospel um, we're going to camp out for the next few weeks every Passage for the remaining um, uh, uh, sermons in our Advent series will be in the Gospel of Luke. But last week we looked at the King's Advent song uh, in Psalm 110. Today we're going to look at the Mother's Advent song, the Song of Mary. But first let's just do a little bit of context. For most of you, if not all of you, this will be somewhat review, but it's good to just kind of see the, the grander storyline so we can situate this song. The, the narrative of Jesus' birth in, in Luke's gospel actually begins with the announcement of John the Baptist's birth, right? The, the story begins with the priest Zechariah, who eventually is going to sing a song of his own, and we're going to take a look at that song next week, um, and his wife Elizabeth, who is a very godly woman, and they're visited by the angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel tells Zechariah that Elizabeth is going to carry the prophetic forerunner of the Messiah, and of course, she does. Despite her advanced age, Zechariah and Elizabeth conceived the son who will be named John. And when she's six months pregnant, Gabriel then goes to visit Elizabeth's relative, Mary, who is engaged, not yet married, but engaged to Joseph. And Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to carry Jesus. Jesus. This, despite the fact that she's a virgin, she's not married yet and she hasn't had sexual relations, uh, um, even aside from that, the Holy Spirit will, in fact, conceive the Christ child in her womb. And then Mary goes to visit Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is kind of where our preaching passage picks up. And when she arrives and greets Elizabeth, John the Baptist, we're told, leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And then Elizabeth issues this kind of beautiful blessing that we see here, and Mary's response is then this beautiful prayer song, which is what we're going to focus our attention on this morning. We find the song in verses 46 through 55. We're going to consult um, the surrounding context as we go, and in fact, um, even some other verses outside of the scripture reading um, in Luke chapter 1, but the song is there in verses 46 through 55. Mary's song has traditionally uh, been called the Magnificat, the Magnificat. Um, The word comes, uh, um, it's a Latin word, and it comes uh, to us, it means praises, it means magnified. And the reason the song is called the Magnificat is because uh, in the Latin translation of this passage, it's the very first word of the song. So they would just refer to the song by that first word. And it's a good word, it's a fitting word, because the song that Mary sings um, it, it, it is a song of magnification. It, it magnifies our vision. It enhances our vision, makes more clear the coming Messiah's person and his work. In fact, I think there's at least three things that Mary's song tells us that God has done in the miraculous conception of Jesus and that God will do when the Messiah begins his earthly ministry. The first thing that her song tells us is this. The Messiah will exact his promise. The Messiah will exact his promise. So last week, as we looked at Psalm 110, we saw how King David's song looked ahead to Jesus as the fulfillment of the promise to bring the Messiah, the true and better King of Israel, through David's lineage. That Advent song is just one of countless Old Testament passages that lay the prophetic groundwork for the coming of Jesus. And for the new covenant of of, of grace that comes through Jesus as the climactic fulfillment of God's promises in the old covenant. So in our passage today, um, Luke is depicting at numerous points that the Messiah Jesus is the embodiment of God keeping his promises to Israel. In fact, not just to Israel, but to any sinner who will hope in God alone for saving righteousness, Jew or Gentile. The links to Old Covenant promises to uh, the Old Testament plot points in this passage, I think, are really fascinating. So remember, first of all, in the backstory to this passage, that Elizabeth's pregnancy, where she is thought to be beyond the age of childbearing, um, perhaps unable to conceive, and then she, she is told that she's going to carry a child who will be John the Baptist, She's advanced in age. Zechariah kind of laughs at this idea or just is skeptical. Who does this remind us of in the Old Testament? Abraham and Sarah, exactly right. Um, Abraham's wife, Sarah. Very similar situation. And when they were told you're going to conceive a child at your advanced age, Sarah scoffs at the idea. She kind of laughs at the idea. Well, in this context, Zechariah kind of doubts. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week when we look at his song that is about to be sung. But Gabriel tells Zechariah his son will be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah coming before the Messiah. Right. So uh, verse 17 of Luke chapter 1, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. The prophetic forecast of the Old Testament is that somehow before the Messiah arrives, there will be Elijah. Elijah is going to somehow return. He's going to come back and he's going to be sort of laying the the, red carpet out. He's going to be announcing the coming of the Messiah. Now, we see here that John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, is this fulfillment. He is the Elijah figure. And Jesus affirms this himself. So in Mark chapter 9, he tells his disciples that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this prophecy of Elijah coming before the Messiah. And the fulfillments just sort of snowball from there. They just begin to accumulate. We also see the prophetic promise explicitly referred to by the angel Gabriel when he says this to Mary earlier in verses 32 and 33 about the Messiah himself. He will be great and will be, and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. End, naming these ancestors, these forefathers, the patriarchs. And, and, and the Messiah is now the fulfillment of what was promised through those figures. So then it makes sense that Mary would reflect on this in her song. In verses 54 and 55, the, the end of the song, as it were, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just as he spoke to our ancestors. What a remarkable thing to say. What a remarkable thing to sing about. Now, I don't, you know, we have a number of mothers in this room. When you were pregnant with any of your children, did you think at any point this child is going to be the most important person in America? He's going to be a help to the United States. Did you ever think that? Maybe you did. I don't know. Maybe you thought my kid's gonna be president someday. I just know he feels smart in there. I don't know. <laughs> but this is what Mary's thinking. Why would she think that? Well, because of the prophecy. Because she's making these connections, and these couple of verses where she's connecting this fulfillment to the, the uh, um, uh, to Abraham is a direct reference to God's promise to Abraham and his descendants. So specifically Genesis chapter 17, the Lord tells Abraham he's going to bless him and multiply his descendants. Right? It's been a long time coming when we finally get here, but while many Israelites might have given up some hope of it ever happening, maybe some of them you know, have even forgotten that this was a promise in the first place. God doesn't forget He doesn't forget his promises, and he doesn't fail to keep them. We might forget, but he remembers. Mary's entire song is also very similar to the song of another figure in the Old Testament. Does anyone know whose song it it kind of sounds like? Another mother, actually. Hannah is exactly right. Hannah is a childless woman. That's right. Gold star. Okay, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah is a childless woman who feels deep affliction, though she fears the Lord. And she is blessed with the child Samuel, whom she dedicates to the Lord. And he becomes a priest who's very instrumental, actually, in the lineage of the king's. She sings a song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and you don't need to turn there, but it contains a lot of references that Mary seems to be drawing on in her own song here. Her heart magnifies the Lord. She sings about the Lord crushing his enemies, she sings about the Lord exalting the humble. It's almost as if Mary's song is kind of a cover version of Hannah's song. What do these common themes tell us? Well, they're beautiful reminders to us that God keeps his promises. And Christ Jesus himself is proof of that. Every prophecy, every foreshadow, every type, every symbol, every old covenant rite and ritual, every promise, all the longing, all the expectation, all the hope, all the desire, all of it culminates in this moment in the God of the universe appearing at this moment in an unborn child the size of a gummy bear, in the womb of a virgin, a tiny exclamation point on the gigantic reality that Jesus is the keeping of all God's promises. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. The advent of the Messiah is our biggest reminder that God does not forget that he will not fumble That he will not fudge on his promises. Every last one is fulfilled in Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Not one jot or tittle will pass by, all will be fulfilled. Nothing slips through the cracks. Jesus isn't like our parents who tell their kids maybe when they don't want to disappoint them with no, right? Dad, can we go to the comic book store this weekend? Maybe. You turn to your siblings, that means no. We're not going to the comic book store. Jesus says yes, and he means it. And by the way, can I just say, it's hard to see that Christ fulfills the promises if you don't know the promises. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary, points out um, that one thing we know for sure from Mary's song is that she did what all faithful Jewish girls did in her day. She memorized scripture. She knew what the promises were. She knew the Bible verses. So as things began to unfold, she's thinking, this is that. This is about that. She knew what promises were being kept in the arrival of her son. Verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And blessed is anyone who holds tight to the promises of God, trusting that he has fulfilled for us in Christ what he has spoken to us by his spirit. Mary knows the Messiah that she is carrying would exact the promises of God, that he would lay claim to what's his, fulfill them to a T. To exact a promise is to lay claim to it, to enact it, to to execute it. Mary is magnifying the Lord because the life she feels growing inside of her is a constant squirming reminder that the Messiah will exact his promise. And that reminder also reminded her to to marvel, to to worship, to, to bow her head in joyful belief. If you don't believe, be careful. Be careful that you do not become puffed up in your own strength, full of yourself. Mary's song has some lyrics about that. Because while the song tells us the Messiah will exact his promise, the second thing this mother's song tells us is this. The Messiah will exile the prideful. The Messiah will exile the prideful. Earlier this year when we preached through the Sermon on the Mount, one thing that resounds over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount is just how subversive and revolutionary the coming of the Messiah's kingdom is. The Beatitudes, for instance, what opens the Sermon on the Mount. It proclaims to us that those at the bottom, the the poor in spirit, the persecuted, those who grieve, those people are the ones who find themselves in in the right side upping of the kingdom, redeemed and, and, and rescued in a way that worldly people cannot even fathom. And they, at the same time, proclaim to us that worldly people... Will experience a judgment and a punishment that they do not expect. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The mother of Jesus sings about this great reversal also, and she sings about it this way, beginning in verse 51. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. The whole way of the world is to reward the greedy, to reward the lustful, to prize those who glory in their appearances, in their own strength and their own wisdom but the good news of the messiah's kingdom is that the poor in spirit receive the blessing which he brings down low and those who put themselves up on high are suddenly found down low if if your treasure if the thing that brings you the most happiness and fulfillment If the thing that brings you the most satisfaction is anything but God, you are heading toward a cataclysm from which only humbling yourself before Jesus will save you. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Nothing. If you're rich and full of everything but Christ, you're the poorest and emptiest of all. This past week at Midwestern Seminary's commencement exercises, President Jason Allen told a story about a visit to France in which his hosts treated he and his wife to a beautiful French meal near the Palace of Versailles. And he said he knew the meal was very expensive. They were trying to treat him to the, the exquisite French cooking. And so the meal was very expensive, and it was immaculately presented it looked beautiful and it was served in a beautiful place in a beautiful way. But he says when they were done, the first thing that struck them was that the meal actually wasn't that good. Guess he doesn't have a taste for French cooking. I don't know. The meal actually wasn't that good. But also, it wasn't filling. They left lunch still very hungry. And they walked around all day very hungry. And on the way back to their hotel that evening, they were very hungry, but they encountered the revelatory glow of a Five Guys, a French Five Guys. And it didn't look like much compared to the stylish, expensive French restaurant meal that they had had earlier, but you know what it did? It filled them up. Dr. Allen said he was later thinking about how so many people experience so many riches and beauty in this world, and yet they walk around still constantly hungry. Is that you? Are you filling yourself up on all the stuff the world has to offer? The stuff that our culture says is going to bring you joy and satisfaction? Or maybe you just think this is what's going to do it. And it might look good to the eyes. It might even promise to satisfy your hunger. It might even make you feel accomplished or experienced or enlightened, entertained. High? Exalted, but somehow you find the more that you consume, the hungrier you actually get. Nothing and no one can satisfy you like Jesus. If you go looking to be satisfied anywhere else, you are only becoming more and more full of yourself. This is the sin that felled mankind in the garden, this is the sin that got Satan cast out of heaven. This is the sin that is the root of every sin it is is pride. And it is damnable. If you pursue as ultimate anything, anything but King Jesus, you will find yourself, in the words that Mary uses here, scattered, toppled, sent away. To enthrone yourself is to find yourself exiled from the joy of Christ. Not just now, but at his second advent, At his second coming, the prideful will be exiled into the eternal condemnation of God's wrath in hell. But if you are hungry for him, verse 52, you will feast forever in the pleasure of his presence among his people because, verse 52, he exalts the lowly. Which leads to the third and final thing that we see in this magnification of the Messiah's work. The Messiah will exalt his people. The Messiah will exalt his people. We begin with Elizabeth's wonder in verse 43. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Not a whiff of jealousy. There is no indication here that she's thinking, well, why couldn't I carry the Messiah? She's just in awe that she gets to be in the presence of this prophecy unfolding. She feels so small in the moment. How could this happen to me? That the mother of my Lord should come see me? And we observe the sheer wonder that God would use the humble, the people who have nothing to offer him, zero, and he would use them to magnify himself. Mary says, verse 46, really, she sings, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because Mary is so great? No, because the mighty one has done great things. He has done great things for me. His name is holy, special, set apart, righteous, glorious. For the holiness of his name, he uses the unexpected, the the unceremonious, even the unfortunate to carry out his purposes. And God's plan, in fact, is to exalt his people through the exaltation of Christ. But we have to understand that the way up is actually down just as Christ showed us in his cross and burial. There's another song that comes a little later we find that's reminiscent of this, very similar to the themes here. It's a hymn of the early church. It's actually found in Philippians chapter two. Uh, Pastor Paul read a portion of it during the worship service earlier. And it's, it's a song actually. I don't know if you know this, but it's, the passage is a an early hymn of the church in Philippians 2, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, and I don't know the melody, so I'm not going to sing it to you, but I'll just read it, read the lyrics, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father kind of catchy Everyone will bow, it says. Everyone will confess. Everyone will be humbled. Here's the question. Because it doesn't just say some will do this. It doesn't even just say some who love God will do this. It says everyone will do this. The question is, will this be for you an act of coercion, an act of punishment, So full of yourself that you follow your own lordship, your own kingship all the way to condemnation. You will acknowledge that he is Lord. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But will it be when it's too late to be saving? For those who fear God, they will rejoice on the day of his appearing the redeemed of God will bow their knees and confess with their mouths, not out of coercion, but out of cheer. Not out of discipline, but out of delight. I've been thinking about this idea for the last couple of weeks. If you you remember from our passage last week, Psalm 110 tells us that the king's people will volunteer on the day of his battle. I don't know, but that verse in particular just seemed to stick out at me. King's people will volunteer on the day of his battle. There's something automatic sounding about it. There's something automatic that happens when God's people behold him. When the glory of Christ confronts us. When we somehow get some kind of glimpse of the beauty, of the majesty, of the bigness of Christ Jesus, the king. People who don't love Jesus see that and they yawn. Or they roll their eyes. They walk away unchanged. But the people who humble themselves, they see it and they respond with joy, with allegiance, with submission. The king's here. I'm with him. Wherever he's going, that's where he's going to battle. I'll go with him. I know he'll go before us. I have nothing to fear. If I'm with King Jesus, I'll go wherever he goes. I'll do whatever he wants me to do. If he's going to war even, I'm going with him. I volunteer. We get a picture of this, even in the narrative bit that occurs prior to our passage in Luke chapter 1. It tells us that when Mary arrives to visit Elizabeth, this is, I, I think it's a picture of worship, even if it's just like a symbolic worship. When Mary arrives to visit Elizabeth, the unborn John leaps in her womb, apparently in response to being so close to his cousin. Like, the God baby Jesus in Mary's womb is approaching, and it's like a piece of metal reacting when a highly charged magnet gets close. Somehow, the unborn John was like, "Uh, it's getting close. Certainly, Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, experiences this as well. The humble, the repentant, the lowly, they're drawn to the glorious King. They find their exaltation in Him, not in themselves, because in the light of His glory, they sense their own deficiency, their own need, the offense of their own sin in the blazing light of His holiness. And thus, they surrender to His saving glory. They don't object. They're not repelled or repulsed by it. If you're too big for Jesus, too self-centered for His kingdom, too proud for His cross, you will be too proud for His resurrection too proud for his grace, too proud for his heaven. Christ came humbly that the humble would be exalted with him. Later in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector going down to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee is a person who's just very full of himself. Certainly hyper-religious, we might think like a religious Pharisee, very judgmental. But we can just think of anyone who's just very proud. And the Pharisee walks in and he says, I thank you, God, I'm not like him. Think of whoever the him is for you. Maybe it's not a dirty, filthy tax collector. Maybe it's just somebody you think you're better than. Somebody you look down your nose at, someone you despise or resent and use as the measuring stick. I know I'm better than them. And this is what the Pharisee does. Thank you, God, I'm not like him. I'm so super spiritual. I read my Bible every day, I give a lot of money to the church and to charity. Sunday comes, I go to both services. That's how spiritual I am. The tax collector, though, he he doesn't have, I mean, he, he can barely get the words out. He doesn't have anything formal. He doesn't have the magic formula. Just from his guts, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus says, which one of them goes home justified? Not the guy so full of his own religious presumption. But the filthy sinner who just said, I-, I need you. I'm so hungry and nothing's filling me up. It's gotta be you, God. And Jesus finishes the story by saying, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Elizabeth is is humble, and she's filled with the Spirit. Mary is humble, and she's filled with God in the flesh. Later, Elizabeth's son, John the Baptist, he fulfills his prophetic destiny. He begins announcing the beginning of his cousin's ministry. Not a whiff of jealousy. He doesn't have to think, like, why not me? People are flocking to me too. He's got this kind of weird, funky, radical thing going, right? He's eating bugs. And I mean, people are like, that's weird. I'll come watch that, you know? And then Jesus shows up and he, there's, there's no envy. He Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And despite his important ministry which has become a magnet in and of itself for people who are interested in the coming of God's kingdom. John continues to humble himself before the Lord. He says things like, the one who's coming after me, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. And he must increase, I must decrease. And what does Jesus do with this humility? He doesn't dismiss it or ignore it or despise it. He exalts it. Jesus later says to his disciples, of anyone born of woman, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Wow. But then he adds, but the least in the kingdom is greater than him. The Messiah will exalt his people. As Mary sings in verse 50, his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. Those who reject King Jesus will be exiled from the coming paradise, the new heavens and the new earth that arrive at the consummation of the kingdom in his second advent. But those who cherish the first advent, those whose blessed hope is the second advent, his mercy has secured their place in his everlasting peace. The Roman Catholics commit a a flurry of heretical mistakes with passages like this they see the blessedness of Mary, the exaltation of her, but not as Christ's grace working through her humility, but somehow even exalting her as a source of grace in and of herself. So they come up with things like the perpetual virginity of Mary, which means that even after the birth of Christ, even after marriage to Joseph, she remained a virgin the rest of her life. But even the scriptures speak of Jesus having siblings, so we know that that Mary had more children with, um, with Joseph afterwards. They come up with ideas like um, the Immaculate Conception, which um, the, the common misunderstanding that the Immaculate Conception speaks of the virgin birth, but it doesn't. It, the Immaculate Conception is the idea that Mary herself was born of a virgin, because to be a virgin, to be holy enough to carry the Christ child, she would also need to be born of a virgin. What I don't understand, and I'm sure that there's a whole system of theological speculation that outlines this but i don't understand why mary's grandmother wouldn't also have to be a virgin and it wouldn't have to just keep like i don't know like turtles all the way down virgins all the way down i don't know, like but they don't think that i don't understand that but perhaps most blasphemous is they very often position mary as some kind of co-redeemer with jesus But this doesn't just dishonor Christ. It certainly dishonors Christ. But it doesn't just dishonor Christ. It dishonors Mary. In his commentary, John Calvin says, Nothing could be more disrespectful to her than to rob the Son of God of what is his own, to clothe her with sacrilegious plunder. And he later says, Calvin says, those praises of Mary are absurd and spurious, which do not altogether exalt the power and free grace of God. We even see somewhat of a picture of this in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 11, there's a woman in the crowd who cries out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the one that nursed you. Which would be the prime place for Jesus to somehow affirm like some kind of veneration of Mary, of his mother. Jesus loved his mother very much. But Jesus replies and says, Rather, which is really interesting, (laughs) Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, Mary is special. Uh, There's no denying that. And this passage teaches us that. Mary is special. But so is any person humble enough to submit to the word of the gospel. The kind of exaltation that Mary receives is the same kind that you and I can receive. Not because we're special any more than Mary's special, but because Jesus is special. So is Mary blessed and highly favored among women? Yes, without question. But it's not just his humble mother who is blessed, who will be exalted to heaven because of Christ's work. It's any person who will humble themselves and admit that they are a sinner in need of Jesus and trust in Him alone for salvation. He has died to forgive sinners and risen again to purchase their eternal life. And get this, anyone can get in on this. Anybody. Provided it's not beneath you. If you're too big for it, you can't have it. But if you can get low enough, He will give you heaven, the highest of heights. And you might say, look, I'm not a theologian, I'm not churchy, I'm not a religious person, I'm not even terribly spiritual. You may say, I- I'm not just a sinner, I- I- I'm a terrible sinner. Let me tell you, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. In fact, there's no other kind of sinner than a terrible one. <laughs> the minute you begin to think, well, I'm a sinner, but you know, eh you're in trouble. God has sent his son to save terrible sinners. Verse 48, he looks with favor on the humble condition. Why? The Messiah chooses to exalt the humble specifically to prove that all the mercy, all the might, all the grace, all the glory is his. So the wonder of Advent, the the wonder of Christmas Is that God would look upon poor parents like Joseph and Mary, who have nothing to offer. They have no social currency. They have no cultural clout. They have nothing to commend them. They're two sinners who simply fear God and they trust in Him. And then He takes them and He exalts them by bringing about the exaltation of His Son through them. And the Messiah doesn't come with fanfare, He comes in a manger. And he doesn't come with majestic stallions, but he comes lowly on a donkey. And they're not waving swords at this military conquest. They're waving palm branches. And he doesn't come to conquer through violence, but by loving and serving and feeding and healing. And he doesn't come to overthrow the powers and principalities through the bloodshed of his enemies, but through the bloodshed of himself. And so those who get low enough who will get low enough so as to be buried with him, they'll be raised with him. Even, as Paul says, seated with him in the heavenly places. You talk about exaltation. He will lift up all who come in humble repentance to him. He will receive them and he will never cast them away. You come to Christ with your pockets outturned, your stomach growling, I have nothing to offer you. I don't even know why you would want me, but I'm trusting that you do. And he will bring you into his arms forever. The prideful try to claim the glory and they'll be cast out. At the great day of judgment, they will be exiled forever. But those who humble themselves today admit they need a savior, surrender to him and believe in the gospel, they will be at the end of days exalted and Christ will get all the glory. Verse 49, Because the Mighty One has done great things for us, His name is holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I, I know that it is not a well-turned phrase or a passionate pleading that turns a heart from stone to flesh. It is Your Holy Spirit working through the power of the good news. And so I pray for any precious soul in this room who does not know your Son, Christ Jesus, that whatever is distracting, whatever that I might have said that serves as an obstacle or a lack of clarity, that you would just brush that away and give each of us a vision of the cross of your Son, Where he died to forgive sinners. And a vision of the empty tomb. Where he rose to give us eternal life. What a gift the good news is. Help us to see it as good. That we might be changed forever. For anyone lost in this room, find them this very second. For every found person in this room, strengthen them by your grace. That we would all become more and more like your son, Jesus. Because he is the most glorious person who ever lived. We pray these things in his name. Amen.